Hey there, adventurers. Grab your sword and shield because today we're diving deep into the legendary realm of Hyrule by looking back at the original legend of Zelda and Zelda 2 Adventures of Link. Picture this. It's the early 80s and Shigeru Miyamoto and a team of developers at Nintendo are preparing to develop new titles to support Nintendo's home console initiative. On one hand, they've decided to create an athletic platforming game using a character from Donkey Kong, the foundation of the Super Mario series. But for a second addition to the lineup, they're looking to create something completely different. Open world, full of puzzles, a whole list of ideas that didn't fit Super Mario. A list that would become Legend of Zelda, a list that we're going to look back on today. So grab your Master Sword, grab your Recorder, and let's warp our way into yet another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello, and welcome to the 182nd episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, and likely the people who've created it. It can be about a gaming console, and the technology that allowed it to happen. More often than not, it's also about the companies that make it all happen. Our stories bring everything together. While bringing you each story, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Today, today, we're going back to the very beginning of the Legend of Zelda series. We're going to look back at the Legend of Zelda itself. We're going to look back at the Legend of Zelda 2. So basically, it's an episode on the NES Legend of Zelda. It's going back to the very beginning. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who also has not hooked up with the girl he's been pining over for hundreds upon hundreds of years. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, when's it finally going to happen? Well, Dave, at the rate we're going, giving it a few hundred more years. A few hundred more years. I don't think it's ever going to happen for Link. Well, who knows, Dave? Guess we'll just have to keep playing and find out. And the stupid part is we're all going to keep playing. I mean, there's oh, nothing yeah. stopping us from playing these games ever. No, not which at all, is, Dave. But which they're is good, like, yeah, I was going to say, it's a testament to how good the series still is some 30 some years later. Hmm. 38 years later. Wow. <laughs> all right rob <laughs> i hate yep. you what are some of the highlights from this week in gaming history well dave february 21st 1980 which was 44 years ago hal laboratories was founded beginning a long-lasting legacy to spawn the likes of the kirby mother and smash brothers series mother sorry that's what i think of when i hear it, mother but it's really earthbound to us people here in the states so. that it is which that, that was always one of those things i never knew mother and then when i finally made the connection it was like oh damn okay yep funny stupid thing is they should bring i mean fans have translated the others and brought them over and nintendo really should because i think that there are enough people that would play all of them that you know you should make them all and re-release them in a collection I don't disagree, but, you know, it's not on their list. I do know. Mario and Smash. Unfortunate. 37 years ago in 1987, Contra was released in arcades, setting the framework for the NES version to come stateside a year later. And with it, the Konami Code. We did a whole episode on the Konami Code. It was on cheating. It was one of our earlier episodes. Was it on Contra? I don't remember. I don't think it was on Contra. I think it was specifically on the Konami code. Uh, I definitely know it was. there was a Konami code talk, but uh, yeah, I'm not 100% certain if it was... Because it was on Easter a... eggs. Like, we did it on Easter eggs and cheating. Oh, so it might have been that you put the Konami code in some other games and it did stuff. No, I, I mean, we were specifically talking about cheating, and that's one of the most popular cheats 
ever. I remember it was Easter eggs because we talked about like the Easter egg in Adventure and the Zizzy Code in Colossal Cave Adventure in the very beginning. Uh, you ranted for a while about how much you loved the codes for Grand Theft Auto. So it was a good episode. Yeah, that it was. <laughs> okay. In 1993, 31 years ago, the barrel roll was introduced to the world. Hmm? Kidding, Dave. But it was when Star Fox taught a generation of gamers what the barrel roll was. It is. Do a barrel roll. Do a barrel roll. Little fucking frog. Hey, leave Slippy alone. Leave Slippy alone. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Cool. Anyone remember this mobile game fad that was Tiny Wings? Mm-hmm, sure do. Well, that was 13 years ago this week that we all started seeing how far we could get our birds to go. Did you play Tiny Wings? Do you remember it? I definitely did, but I I didn't play enough competitively enough to get a good score, so I probably had some crap score. I couldn't tell you what it was. I mean, 13 years ago was really still early on in mobile gaming, so every time there was a good game, it was a fad. Like, I mean, we did an Angry Birds episode recently, and that was definitely one of the first big ones. Tiny Wing was one of the ones that was a flash for a while, and everyone I knew had to have it. We all were like, how far did you get? Did you get this many stars on this? How far did you get? was fun Uh, it was like that and angry birds like what you said but also like flappy wings and temple run race temple run was a huge one for a while uh fun run was another one it's these fads hit they sometimes they do they did i don't know if we'll ever have an era like that in mobile gaming well who it just means they gotta push it they do have to push it 14 years ago in 2010 heavy rain was released to the world and ever since then, people have been screaming Jason for no good reason. Jason! Jason! Press Quite X like to that. Jason. Press X to Jason. That's the meme. Thank you, Dave. I actually never played Heavy Rain. Another PlayStation exclusive. It was another PlayStation exclusive. It's not anymore. I'm pretty sure I have it on PC. I think oh. it's on PC now. I think I'll, I'll look into that. But yeah, I never got to, to try that one because... Yeah, I was an Xbox house. You were an Xbox house for sure. It was a year later in 2011 that the best Duke Nukem game that never was Bulletstorm was released. <laughs> Did you ever play Bulletstorm? No, but I watched a lot of it being played. It was it was it was unusually good game. Like it was a real good game. So it definitely looked fun. And hey, it probably still is. So go buy it. It is, and it's pretty cheap. I see it go on sale for like probably 10 bucks or less all the time now. So not bad at all. It was six years ago in 2017 that Halo Wars 2 was released worldwide. And honestly, Dave, I think there needs to be another one. That's probably true, actually. It is. Those were good games. You, I'm pretty sure you're the one who made me play them. I'm sure I am. I mean, come on. It was your style of game mixed with Halo, which was a fantastic game. True statement. And, you know, it's only been five years since release of Anthem, which is now just a topic of conversation for just about every list of biggest video game disappointments ever. I never got around to it. I I, honestly before that is about when I stopped pre-ordering games. Like, and just, you know, you know, that's my style now. I, I barely buy anything when it first comes out. Oh, I know. I tend to be the same way. Only certain games get past that. But uh, yeah, no, I Anthem. I think I might have downloaded it and tried it once and never played it again. So I, I'm, I guess I'm not the best, best critic of that one. But I don't know. Maybe if I only played it once, that is the best critique. Gotcha. And Dave. Two years ago, you have to remember your favorite game being released. What came out two years ago? Sudokats. <laughs> what the hell is Sudokats? Dave, you already know this. Yeah, but for those right. that don't, it's Sudoku for cat people. Oh, that's right. I forgot that I had Sudoku for cat people. You are absolutely right. I know, Dave. And for those that don't, just know that its description reads that when you adopt a cat and they're other cats already living in the house, you need to make a gradual introduction first. <laughs> and that is where Sudo cats can come in handy. That 
that's like adoption and fostering 101 and also the introduction to Sudokats. Well, Dave, I did say you own it. It just happens to be your life. <laughs> I don't need to play the game. It's my life. Exactly. <laughs> and with that, I have nothing more for this week in gaming history to say. So, Dave, why don't you tell us about Zelda? When it came time for Nintendo to create launch titles for the Nintendo Famicom family computer, or as we know it stateside, the Nintendo Entertainment System, they ended up creating a whole new division in their research and development department to do it. Now, we've done episodes on each of these divisions, R&D 1, 2, 3, and 4 all these divisions you can go back in our archives you know old episodes at www.memorycardlane.com and you can find episodes that specifically talk about the history of just about every one of these divisions specifically the one we're going to revisit today we've talked about not too long ago in episode 159 when we talked about the creation of super mario brothers and we revisited the careers of its creators, which were Shigeru Miyamoto and Takashi Tezuka. You see, at the time, there were three divisions in their R&D department. R&D 1 was supporting Nintendo's arcade and handheld initiative, which would have been like the Game & Watch line at the time. And here they would have also been producing arcade versions of games like 83 would have been the original Mario Brothers and Donkey Kong Jr., for instance. So that's what they were working on at the time. R&D 2 was the hardware division, so to speak. They were directly responsible for designing the Famicom and later the NES. And on the game front, they were more so porting these arcade hits over to consoles. They weren't really doing original stuff at the time. And then R&D 3 was supporting R&D2. They supported the hardware initiative. So during this time, they're credited uh, with with designing the actual game packs that the Famicom and the NES were using, the the cartridges themselves, so to speak. And so Research and Development 4 was created to develop software to support Nintendo's desire to break into the home console market. They placed a lot of talent into this division. It was their game. It was going to be their original game division after all, you know, including the creators of Mario, Miyamoto and Tezuka. But what's important to today's story is something that we really only briefly touched on in probably one sentence back in the Super Mario story. And that is the fact that Super Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda were actually created at the exact same time. The design team at R&D4 sat down and they conceived of both games together. There was actually a period of about five to seven months in which they were developing both titles at the same time. And this is important. It's an important fact to know because The Legend of Zelda was specifically designed to not be Mario. It's the anti-Mario. It's different than Mario. And some of the design decisions that were made because of that actually made the development team nervous and unsure of the long-term success of the title. Now, Rob, looking at Mario and Zelda, just like, can you see in any way how they're they're not like they're anti- antithetical to each other no i mean (laughs) i mean you 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 yeah yeah but like we don't think of them that way right i mean we don't think uh, i mean literally they were designed as two sides of the same coin and they're two of the most beloved franchises for nintendo but no one actually looks at them like they're polar opposites right you get what i'm saying yeah, no, I'm. I, there's so many parallels that you can draw between them. It's just, it's difficult. So, let's talk about it. So, Super Mario Brothers was designed 
for the Nintendo cartridges that we all know and love. It was meant to be an exclamation point to the cartridge format because it was changing. Now, in North America, Super Mario Brothers was a launch title, right? So, like, Super Mario Brothers and, what, 10-yard fight and balloon fight, and I I can keep, I think there were 13 launch titles for the NES in North America, including Super Mario Brothers. So we can't separate, at least in my opinion, we can't separate, like, the Nintendo and Super Mario Brothers because, like, we got them together. But in Japan, there were only three launch titles, and Super Mario didn't come until two years later, almost two years later. Can you wrap your head around that at all? Like, Not the t- really. The two are associated with each other, but like, you know, Nintendo Famicom was 1983, Mario Brothers is 1985. I mean, it, there was a lot, there was time in between, you know? But just, it just, it not for us, because Super Mario Bros. was packaged with the Nintendo here in North America, but it was definitely not, it wasn't. So Super Mario Brothers was, you know, they were designing this original software as the system was becoming more popular and growing, and it was designed as, like I said, it, it, it was described as an exclamation point. Like, they wanted it to be like, bam, this is the title that can showcase what everything the cartridge format and the Famicom can do. Zelda, on the other hand, was designed for an add-on peripheral for the Famicom called the Famicom Disk System. And that was due to be released shortly. So the idea was that Zelda was going to be a launch title for this disc system. Now, we've never really had an opportunity to talk about the disc system. And I don't want to go into it in detail because I think that I want to cover it in the Nintendo episode itself. But I still think that we need to we need to kind of briefly talk about it so you can understand so the disk system is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's an add-on for the Famicom that uses floppy disks to store its games, not the cartridges that we're all used to. It was never released in North America, United States, for reasons that we'll, we'll get to momentarily. Um, so North American listeners are probably really unfamiliar with it. Have you ever stumbled across any of the disks before, Rob? Nope, can't say that I have, Dave. And the reason for its creation was rather simple. At the time, floppy disk technology was cheaper. It was cheaper storage. Within a year, year and a half of its release, the Famicom was dominating the Japanese market. And retailers were clamoring for not only systems, but also more games and more importantly, cheaper games. So Nintendo was looking for solutions to that and cheaper storage was what they came up with. So, like I said, we have an episode on the Famicom, the NES. It's middle of July, if you're curious, and we'll dive into all the details of it in that episode. But one of the interesting features of the disk system that is important for today is that it had the ability to rewrite game data. It was a floppy disk. It was a writable floppy disk. Eventually, this would become the saving game concept that we know in the cartridges, but early cartridge that wasn't a technology that was developed when cartridges first came out. They didn't have battery backup. They didn't have ROM, the type of chip ROM chips that were necessary for that to happen. They weren't financially feasible when this technology was first developed. So early games didn't have save features. So that was one of the things that everyone was really excited about with the disc system was that now we had the ability to rewrite game data and basically you could save your games or change your games or, or update your games, things like that. We have the cartridges because eventually, you know, the cost of chips did come down. Battery backups became a thing. There, there are a lot of reasons why that this technology became obsolete by the time the NES made it to the States. And that's why we don't have it here. But at the, this point in time, the concept of rewriting game data was something like something new and exciting that the team wanted to take advantage of. So initially where this all started was that they came up with an idea that would take advantage of the disc systems ability 
to rewrite game data by making a game that allowed players to create dungeons and explore each other's dungeons. That's where this all started. That was their first concept of what would become Zelda. Miyamoto liked the idea of getting lost in dungeons because it reminded him of his childhood. He spent time outside getting lost, and his childhood home had a maze of sliding doors. And so he equated that to like a labyrinth, a maze. And so he really liked the idea of creating dungeons. But as it turns out, getting lost in the dungeons was the best part. The team enjoyed playing through the dungeons better than creating the dungeons themselves. So with that feedback, they decided to pivot and redesign it as a single player game that had dungeons under a series of mountains that surrounded, they called it Death Mountain. And from that, things just kind of expanded, right? So we have mountains and underground dungeons. Well, cool. Now I want to explore above ground too. All right, well, now we need forests and now we need lakes. And eventually, you know, we need a field, a central location. So Hyrule Field. So this all just kind of expanded it from there. Super Mario was designed to be, as they put it, an athletic platformer. It was very deliberate, very linear. That was the idea for it. So the Legend of Zelda as the anti-Mario was going to be anything but. It was going to be an open world, so to speak. It was a non-linear game whose vastness took advantage of all the extra storage that floppy disks would allow them to have. Miyamoto's idea for a game world as they fleshed out first the creation tools and then the world as we now know it was to give players a miniature garden that they could put inside their drawer. He drew inspiration from his childhood. In an interview, he noted that when I was younger, I grew up in the countryside of Japan. And what that meant was that I spent all my time playing in the rice paddies and exploring the hillside and having fun outdoors. When I got into the upper elementary school ages, that was when I really got into hiking and mountain climbing. There's a place near Kobe where there's a mountain and you climb the mountain and there's a big lake near the top of it. We had gone on this hiking trip and climbed up the mountain and I was so amazed. It was the first time I had ever experienced hiking up this mountain and seeing this big lake at the top. And I drew on that inspiration when we were working on The Legend of Zelda and we were creating this grand outdoor adventure where you go through these narrow confined spaces and come upon this great lake. And so it was around that time that I really began to start drawing on my experiences as a child and bringing that into game development. But as they expanded the open world concept, the team was actually concerned about the fact that the game was nonlinear. Instead of presenting a clear path forward, like most games until that point, right? Single screen, it's obvious. When you have a single path like Mario, it's obvious. A nonlinear design like this forced players to think about what they should do next. They were afraid that gamers would become bored and stressed by what they saw as a completely new gaming concept. Miyamoto recalled in another interview that players initially had trouble finding their way through the multipath dungeons, for instance. Uh, I mean, frankly, we all did, but part of the fun was figuring out. But it that the feedback they got from that made that team nervous. They were worried that it would be too difficult and too hard and people would lose interest in what they were designing, which is so funny to think about now, right? Like they were building a world and they were worried about, they were worried about just throwing a character in a world and letting them go ape, letting them do their own thing. And frankly, like that's the, I think that that's like the gaming experience nowadays, right? Uh, I would say so. Yeah. Like that's the thing, drop your character in a world and let them explore the world. And that that's that that's it. That's the core. And and back then they're like, ooh, if we don't tell the player what to do, are they gonna like it? 
Well, it turns out they did like it. So. So Miyamoto knew that he wanted it to be the legend of something right from the get go, but he wasn't quite sure what that something was going to be. The concept was that as they fleshed this all out, that he wanted an everyday boy to get drawn into a series of incredible events who then grows to become a hero. It was to be a game where players could experience the feeling of exploration as they traveled about the world in the same way he hiked and explored the world. He wanted players to become familiar with the history of the land they were exploring. He wanted them to become familiar with the land they were exploring themselves. I mean, all things, again, that are so commonplace nowadays. So he's trying to put all these ideas together. And one of the PR planners for the game suggests that they make like an, a storybook, an illustrated storybook for the game. And the planner had suggested an illustrated story where they rescue a princess who is a timeless beauty uh, that has classic appeal. In the same breath, he mentioned that there is a famous American author whose wife's name is Zelda, which as we know now is Zelda Fitzgerald. And he said, how about you give that name to the eternal beauty? That's how, that's how the, uh, the conversation was translated. I just think that's a fantastic way to phrase it, right? Yeah, definitely. Give that name to the eternal beauty. Well, Miyamoto didn't like the idea of the storybook, but he really liked the name Zelda. So it stuck, and the Legend of Zelda was born. Their everyday boy that gets drawn into a series of incredible events ended up being named Link. Named named in part because he connects players to the interactive world. He is a blank slate that links you to this game world. It's funny that it's that simple, right? Yeah. I mean, like... We don't even think, of, I mean, Zelda, Zelda, we kind of, I, I kind of know, right? Like, I'm not surprised that they got Zelda from Zelda Fitzgerald because it's a very unique name, you know? Mm -hmm. But just the concept that Link was named that because he's the link between the player and the game, that one cracks me up a little bit because it's so like on the nose, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and it, it, it just like, we don't even think about it. Like, it's just Link. Here's Link. Here's Zelda. Here's Link. Link, you're not actually a person. You're just an extension of me. <laughs> you know? Mm hmm Much of the story and the script was actually written by Tetsuya Tezuka. Uh, Miyamoto produced the game. He was mostly overseeing the rest of production, so he left the writing to Tezuka. Some of the original ideas for the game that weren't used involved technological concepts, uh, like one in which the Triforce was made of electronic circuits and Link was a time-traveling hero. All joking aside, the concept was that he was a hyperlink. <laughs> Good one. Uh, it's the truth. I mean, that, that was what they were thinking at the time. Now, we know that none of those ideas were used in the original Zelda, but they all did kind of find their way into later Zelda titles, you know? True. Tezuka wrote Link's first adventure to be more of a fairy tale adventure. He took inspiration from books such as Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And to add to that, Miyamoto later said that Indiana Jones was popular at the time, so he asked Tezuka to bring that concept of adventure and treasure hunting into the game as well, which is something that we see developed in like finding the rupees and, and finding the treasures in the dungeons and stuff like that. And then Link, they got inspiration, like Link's green tunic and his ears and everything. Uh, he was inspired by Peter Pan. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've said that recently that, you know, we kind of started doing this and noticed how he resembled Peter Pan and just kind of went with it. So, oh, that was just recent. 2012 is the interview I found where they admitted that. So, oh wow, I guess I, I guess not that recent. No, I mean that is pretty recent. I would have expected to have been way sooner than that, considering how long this has been out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems so obvious when you look at it, but it's not something that was like sp spoken, like like put out in the open 
And then someone asked in 2012 and they said, yep, you're right. Like we st- we, we didn't intend for it to be that way, but when we noticed the resemblance, we just leaned into it. So I mean, why not? I know at that point, it's also important to note that the developed team wanted to create a game. And this applied to both Mario and the legend of Zelda that got rid of the concept of the highest score, right? Cause that was just, that was the way games were made at the time you go into an arcade and, and there's not really a beginning or an end per se. There's a keep playing this and get as high of a score as you possibly can. And when they sat down to do Mario and Zelda, that was one thing they shared in common was they just wanted to create a game where the concept was just finish the game. You know, here's a goal to achieve. Here's a reason to play beyond just surviving until you get the highest score. And and that they did. They sat down with all these concepts in mind and they started a series that has lasted 38 years. Like I noted in the beginning, for about five to seven months, they concurrently worked on both games. At one point, they needed to wrap up Super Mario, so they went ahead and did that. Then everyone came back to rush and finish Zelda so they could release it as a launch title for the Famicom Disk System, the FDS. And in doing so, they gave the world something completely new. Do you, dear listeners, have something of your own completely new that you'd like to give to the world? Have you ever considered making your own podcast? Do you have something clever and engrossing that you'd like to share with the world, but you really don't know how? Our friends at Zencaster have created an all-in-one podcasting suite of tools that makes it easier than ever to make your own podcast. With Zencaster, it's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser, and you just start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It allows you to record up to 4K video with your guests. And with Zencaster's multi-layered backups, you always have the highest quality recordings, even if the connection is unstable. And with Zencaster, you never have to worry about what you sound like. Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes all those ums and ahs, gets rid of awkward pauses, filters out background noise. You can set the ideal podcast loudness, there's a whole bunch of great audio features that are all available to you at a single click of a button. And if the thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need tons of different tools and services, relax. Those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. So if you'd like to start your own podcast or you want to take your current podcast to the next level, we've got a deal for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our offer code memory card lane and you'll get 30% off the first month of any Zencaster paid plan. Sign up for Zencaster today and you can experience the same ease in producing your own high quality podcast as we do each week. Go out and share your idea with the world. Share your idea with the world indeed. That is a fantastic idea. And that is what the team at Nintendo R&D 4 definitely did. So The Legend of Zelda was a launch title for the FDS, the Famicom Disk System, which all released in February of 1986. So yes, You can find the original Zelda out there as a gold floppy disk, so to speak. It had the option to save the game right to the disk. And one of the things that the Famicom disk system had was an extra sound channel that this game took advantage of. That means that some of the sounds are different than in the version that most of us NES players are used to. Truth be told, it means they sound better on this version. One other fun thing that you probably don't know about this version is that uh, one of the controllers on the Famicom actually had a microphone built in, and this game actually uses it. Uh, There is a large rabbit-like creature called a vole that you defeat by blowing or shouting into the microphone. Nice. The Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES controllers, do not have microphones. So we don't have the ability to do that. But this concept was never removed when the 
Mistrusha Manual was translated over to the United States. So the manual still has a suggestion that the voles hate loud noise. And this confused people, probably still to this day, by making them think that the voles were susceptible to an attack by the recorder in the game. But no, they are not. Uh, they are not at all. You you had to scream at them if you had the original version on the uh, disc system. Yeah, I could see the confusion there, though. Yeah, I mean, they're just normal enemies that you attack in our version. So there is a book of magic in the U.S. release. It's actually called the Bible in the Japanese version. No doubt a result of Nintendo of America's censoring of religious or adult content. Something that we've talked about before. True. And like I said, eventually technology caught up with all these fun ideas that designers had and the cost of producing the cartridges came down. Rather, the cost of producing the chips and the cartridges came down. Uh, Hence why the Nintendo Entertainment System is cartridge based and we don't have a floppy disk system. So when this game was brought to North America... Nintendo wanted to set it apart from all the other games to make sure that players knew it was really special. So the first run of this game was created in gold colored cartridges and the box for it had a slot cutaway to show off part of the gold cartridge to whomever was looking to buy it. So Mm. it sold incredibly well. The original disc version of the game was said to have sold a million copies on its first day alone. Numbers that were seemingly unheard of at the time. Stateside, it was actually the first NES game to sell over a million cartridges during 1987. The game ended up selling about 6.51 million copies worldwide across all its versions um, of that first NES run. So, and the disc system rather. That's damn impressive. For a Nintendo game that wasn't Hell packaged yeah. with a system? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's damn impressive. Absolutely impressive. So, Rob, let's. have you ever played the original Zelda? I have played it once. Well, I shouldn't say once. I tried playing it a few times. Uh, I had an emulator, uh, cough, cough, and the original, actually. I remember the gold cartridge for... Uh, the NES. I probably still have one laying around. Probably. I just got lost a lot in the game. <laughs> and then when I finally managed to like, when I finally got to the point of understanding like, oh, well, first you have to go talk to the old man and all this, like figuring that out and getting Master Sword. But then going into dungeons, like once I finally figured out, oh, here's how you get to a dungeon. Uh, I only cleared like one, maybe two. Yeah. So I didn't get very far, but I have played it at least. So Fun thing about the, that, too, that I didn't mention. So one of the original, I guess, versions of the game, prototypes, you actually started out with the sword in your inventory. The, nice. The old man was added later on. Miyamoto said it was kind of a form of communication. He wanted, He wanted people to... He wanted people to, like understand that they had to reach out and talk to other people to get through this right so he wanted to encourage cooperation and collaboration between gamers to solve the world and the puzzles and so on and so forth and adding the old man and and forcing you to go talk to him to move forward with the game was his way of like, like figuratively encouraging that in the game as well. So Hmm. as he put it, I was trying to open up a like new form of game communication for both the game and gamers. There was something, you know, something along those lines. So um, that was, that was not in the game originally. So I played it. I played it back then. I played it. I've played it since then, modern modern wise, because I s- was awful. I was trash as a kid at it, because again, didn't know where things were, and didn't have the capacity to figure that out when you're like, I don't know, I was probably six when I played this, if not sooner. So, 
don't remember it much initially, but I definitely have gone back and played it now a few times, both the first and the second quest, and have had an opportunity to explore the world extensively. It's got something like 120, maybe even 60 some screens in the game world. Like it's a, it's like a 16 by eight. I think that whatever 16 by eight is, it's a 16 by eight world. 16 across and eight up, I think is what it is. So there, it's not a small world by any stretch of the imagination. That's pretty crazy to think about for that time. Absolutely. I would not have thought it was that big. So, uh, yeah. So first and second quest, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with the way this stuff worked back then, it had passwords, not really passwords. If you entered your the name Zelda, I think it was Zelda as your name, because this game let you name your character in the beginning. Like when you create a save game, if you named it Zelda, it would start a second quest that was different than the first one with randomized like dungeons in a different place and it was harder and so on and so forth. Like everything was in a different order. So Hmm, it's pretty neat. That's where the concept, the concept of the master quest came from. And it's been like that. And every Zelda, just about every Zelda has had some form of a master quest, you know? Yeah. It's just a hard, I mean, it's the master quest. If you consider the story mode, but also like master quest version, which makes the game, it's a harder difficulty. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, So I wanted a chance. I wasn't planning on this when I sat down to do this episode. I was I was planning on just doing this on the first Zelda. But as I did my research in the first Zelda and saw how it was developed and then kind of saw how that transitioned into Zelda into Zelda 2, I felt I kind of pivoted and decided that I wanted to bring Zelda two into this episode and kind of make it an episode on all of the Nintendo Zeldas. So there's a reason for it. It very much mirrors the development of the legend of Zelda itself. If the legend of Zelda is the anti super Mario brothers, then Zelda 2 is the anti-legend of Zelda. Miyamoto and Tezuka, once it was decided they were going to make a sequel, assembled an entirely new team to develop it. They were the only two people that carried over from Zelda 1 to Zelda 2. And the idea, the design idea for Zelda 2 right from the get-go was that we want Zelda 2 to be fundamentally different from the legend of Zelda. So it's funny to me that that's how this all started, right? The first game was started because, Hey, we're going to make Mario first. And then we want to make a game that is not Mario. It's different than Mario. And then we make that game and it's super successful. And now we want to make another game that is nothing like that. Right. Right. This one I mean, to be fair, I'll get into development in a second, but to be fair, this one didn't hit like like the others did, right? They were kind of on a roll. You know, Mario was different from everything they had done before it. I think the game they just did before it was Devil Story or Excite Bike, one of the two, and they were okay. But then Super Mario's came out, and Super Mario was insanely popular. Let's be honest about that. And then The Legend of Zelda, was a was which was designed to be nothing like Mario was insanely popular right right and so at that point they thought that they could do no wrong by continuing to develop games and making their design philosophy we want to make it anything but what we just did before and even miyamoto has this point like by this point has, has admitted that like zelda 2 was the first time that concept didn't really like it didn't hit like it was supposed to so the idea for the Zelda Zelda 2, the I always want to say the Zelda 2, but it's just Zelda 2, the adventure of Link, was that originally they wanted to create a side-scrolling action game which used up and down movements for attack and defense. So like in the game, the way you see those is like, because it's a side-scrolling platformer like Mario was. And link thrust up with his sword or you could jump and thrust down with your sword and so that's you know attack and defend with these initially they didn't even consider 
this game to be a sequel. It started off just as a sword and shield type of game that they envisioned more of a spin-off to the series. And so they spent a lot of time developing all these systems, all these what ended up being very unique gameplay elements in this game. You know, Zelda 2 has experience points and it has lives. It's the only Zelda game with one-up dolls because it has lives. It has magic. It, you know, it has an overworld map and is side-scrolling. It's got all these unique things, you know. It has a leveling up system that was added so players could battle multiple enemies multiple times. It has encounters on the overworld maps, which was kind of like a way of adding luck to the mix. And the game is incredibly difficult. And these were all design decisions made because at the time, game designers were all concerned about a lack of content in their games. And the perception was... Uh, as we know with many other games in this time period, was harder games are more have more content to them, right? Because it takes longer to get through the same amount of content if it's harder. Right. So they so they added all these things in just to make the game longer, basically. A- and all these very unique things. That they they focused all on the gameplay systems, thinking that they were going to make the spin-off, the sword and shield type game. That was that was the concept, you know. It was going. It was basically it was like a side-scrolling role-playing game, an action role-playing game. It wasn't until the end of development when they sat down to write the story, and at that point, a decision was made that it was going to be Link, and that Link was going to be sixteen years old, that it was going to be a direct sequel to Zelda: The Legend of Zelda, the first Zelda game. And they wrote the story then to put all the pieces together. So, I mean, there's no one's come out and said it, but I mean, and arguably it wasn't a Zelda game and it was a Zelda game, but then they did. They, they put all the pieces together. And funny enough, I don't know, Rob, if you know the Zelda timeline very well, but you have Legend of Zelda and then Zelda 2 and then technically there's not a direct sequel to either of those games until Breath of the Wild. Because every other Zelda that's ever been created is either a prequel or an alternate timeline that, you know, from when the timeline split in Zelda. Technically, Breath of the Wild is the third, like, timeline-wise, it's the sequel to Zelda 2. Right. So... Despite the fact that Zelda 2 was very different, it was still very popular. It ended up selling 4.3 million copies. Uh, that makes it the fifth best-selling NES game of all time. So, I guess on one hand, it did work. But because of how different it is, it's definitely not a fan favorite. When I mean like Miyamoto saying that it didn't hit as well, it's definitely not the fan favorite in the Zelda series, you know? Right. Definitely most pe- not. Most people would rather kind of forget about it. Not the way we want to forget about the CDI versions, the CDI Zelda games, <laughs> which are so bad that we pretty much go, nah, that's not even canon. Like, they don't belong to us in any way, shape. They're literally not even on the Zelda timeline. The CDI games are so awful. They're, they're, I don't know, a dream or something. I don't even know how we play it off nowadays. But yeah, they definitely, definitely don't hit. Uh, another fun fact about it before I wrap it up for today. I, I mean, I don't want to, you know, there, we, there again, things we could talk about other Zeldas and things like that. But I always like to keep these like, you know, concise and what have you. None of the music in Zelda 2 was actually composed by Koji Kondo. Koji Kondo, of course, was the composer from The Legend of Zelda. He made the famous Zelda theme that we know and love that has been recreated in just about every Zelda game afterwards. But like I said, Zelda 2, whole new team, and that included Koji Kondo. He has a credit there because they basically like rearranged his overworld music, the famous Zelda theme, to be the overworld music in Zelda 2. But otherwise, none of the music in Zelda 2 is by Kondo or really well known because basically none of it has ever been reused ever again in a Zelda game. So uh, with that being said, they do use the themes from Zelda two and other games. Like it's, it's 
one of it's on one of the stages in Smash Brothers, for instance, but it's never really been reused in the in any of the main Zelda games. Guess it wasn't that popular. Guess not. But yeah, that's the NES Zeldas. Have you ever played Zelda two? Not two, no. No, not at all. Nope, never. It's it's weird. I played it. I never got very far because it's really hard. I never understood where to go. I mean, as I've played it since and finished it. Um, but as a kid, I I remember not being able to wrap my head around it in any way, shape, or form. And also not liking the concept. I when I was really young, I didn't like I didn't have the patience for leveling, you know, because your concept of time is different as a kid than as an adult. So now, like, we think about, like, the time that we put into it and grinding, and we're like, oh, cool, break from reality, you know what I mean? But as a kid, that was the case. So, like, games where you had the level, like, I remember struggling with them. So, like, this was one that was a struggle. Dragon Quest was a struggle for me. Like, I think about these early games that had role-playing elements and stuff like that. The original Final Fantasy, I did not like it as a kid. I didn't come to appreciate these games until I was more of a teenager, like 13, 14, 15 is when I really started to get into like the RPG genre and then picking up all these old games and going back and playing them, including like, you know, the Final Fantasies and Breath of the Wild and Secret of Evermore you know, Chrono Trigger would have come out when I was, what, 10? So, I mean, it, it was it was more... Maybe I was would have been about 10 then when I first started to appreciate them because, you know, as those games came out, maybe I was 12. I don't know. 10. Anyway, 11. I have no clue anymore. I'm just going to keep <laughs> naming numbers. When was Chrono Trigger? 95? I don't remember. How do you it's not your know? Thing to remember. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to like back me up. Don't I keep you around at least for the ability to Google things and tell me I'm wrong? Yeah, 1995 Chrono Trigger. I do know. I'm not stupid. Anyway, yeah. So I I, I struggled with these games as a kid and didn't like them, but learned to appreciate them later when I had a little bit more time and patience to go back and. Uh, appreciate them for what they were but uh this game's hard um zelda 2 is stupid hard zelda 1 is to me still a lot of fun but the next one's still my favorite in the series so (laughs) there's just something about the sne we'll get around to link to the past but the snes era is just nostalgically it's my era you know what i mean i think we all have an era that we're like your favorite games are nostalgic. They're in that era. You're probably a PlayStation. What PlayStation two era, would you say or Xbox era? What is it for you? PlayStation two. Yeah. I didn't have the original Xbox just on. I started on 360. but yeah, I same. I didn't have original Xbox either. 360 was my first one, too. Yeah, I for me, it's SNES. So like, you know, Super Mario World and Link to the Past and Chrono Trigger, some of these Super Nintendo RPGs. That's my that's my that's my era, man. That's when it was the best. <laughs> Sorry. Sure. Just had to say it. So hey, I'm not wrong. I mean, games like Chrono Trigger are still among like looked at as some of the best games of all time, even this many years later. So I mean, next year is I don't even want to talk about it. 30 years for Chrono Trigger. There you go, Dave. All right, well, that's Zelda. I think that's a good primer on the anti-Mario, a.k.a. Zelda, a.k.a. The Legend of Zelda, and then the anti-The Legend of Zelda, a.k.a. Zelda 2 The Adventure Link. I think it's funny the way that story played out, that every game was designed to not be like the last one. Yeah. Uh, Definitely interesting. Um, Definitely interesting. Definitely interesting. So... We have covered, like I said, episode 159 was Super Mario World, and we've talked about Shigeru Miyamoto in the past. We've talked about Tezuka in the past. We have had multiple episodes where we have covered all things Nintendo. There's an episode in RD1, 2, 3, 4. We've done all this before. You have so much in there that you want to learn about. I promise you that you want to learn about all of these great, great topics. And to do so, all you have to do 
is check out our old episodes, which of course you can do by visiting our website, www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, tell those people what else they could do on our website. Well, Dave, you can find links, uh, calendar to our future episodes. You maybe talk about a topic that you're interested in with us. You can find a link to our Patreon, where for a small amount, you can help support Dave and I and have access to ad-free and unedited versions of the podcast. You can find links to our Discord where you can come hang out with Dave and I, talk games or whatever else you want. Maybe just tell Dave how wrong he is in each and every episode. And you can also find links to our social media where I am on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. Each week, we tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. Well, doing so, we can, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Each week when we approach these topics, we learn new things. That's the best part about sitting down and getting to research all of this, getting to pick the topics. Most of the time when we're sitting, when we're getting ready to, 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 to do an episode, part of the fun for me is being able to find things that I didn't know about. And then if I didn't know about them, chances are you didn't know about them either. I'm just not bragging there. It's the truth. No, I'm just kidding. So that's the fun, being able to bring you things that you might not have known. It's a fun cycle of learning for me. When I teach you guys things, I learn them myself. So in recognition of that fantastic learning teaching cycle, each week we like to talk about what we learn ourselves. So Rob, what did you learn today? Oh, Dave, there was so much to have learned. Was there? So much. No, I actually, there really was. But, you know, I guess I didn't realize that... It was originally designed for the Famicom. The, no, no. Like, it, you know, it, it just obviously we don't know anything. Well, I can't say we don't know anything. We know very little about the Famicom from like a perspective that we didn't have it. So everything like you don't think about it because it wasn't yours. Like I couldn't tell you majority of the games released for Sega Dreamcast because I'd never owned one. I just played some games on them here and there. So it's the same thing like this. Like, I don't ever consider the Famicom, but to know that it was like thought to be designed for the Zelda or the, Zelda for the was, disc system. Yeah. Yeah. Zelda was a launch title, no less. It's it's crazy to think that. So, you know, it's just. Who knows? I don't know. It, Zelda, it's weird. Zelda was a launch title and realistically it was designed to take advantage of like the open world concept was where they said, Hey, we've got all this extra storage. Like what are we going to use it for? And, and what came out of it was bigger world, <laughs> you know, like bigger world. So hey, bigger world does the trick though. Bigger world does the trick indeed. Yeah, very much. So that's a good point, Rob. Good job. Thank you, Dave. Good job. Bro. Good job. I know we briefly touched on it, you know, but I've never really considered that Mario and Zelda were created at the same time. I've never really had to sit down and genuinely think about it. You know, it it's so interesting to me that they did. And what's even more interesting to me is obviously how I framed the narrative for today was the fact that Zelda was literally created to be everything that Mario wasn't like they're 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 literally they literally said that they had a list of Mario ideas and a list of Zelda ideas and they didn't want them to overlap and I think that's so fast that's just so fascinating to me because I've never had to put those two gaming franchises in in that perspective before ever I've never even thought to you know yeah no definitely not I wouldn't have either so that that was my favorite part. The way I wrote the episode is my favorite part of the episode is just that concept that there is a column of Mario ideas and a column of Zelda ideas. And that is that's where we that's where we came from. So it is pretty damn awesome when you think about it, Dave. This one was fun. I wanted to do I mean, we've done other Zelda episodes before, but we've never gone back to the beginning. I sometimes get concerned going back to these earlier games because the earlier you go the less content there is 
you know, which sometimes makes it hard to 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 spread that out into an hour long. And even with like even with something like this, like you think the Legend of Zelda is such a big game, there isn't that much out there. You know, Nintendo was Nintendo was notoriously tight lipped about their games and and like even to this day they're known for like he, like limited access to their game developers so a lot of nintendo games we don't have a ton of information on because that's just not the way that a japanese game company like nintendo did business so you know it's fun to be able to like pull things out from interviews here and there and everything and, and flesh that out into a fun story like this so yeah that's what we did today all right and that'll do it rob before I take it into next week, is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode? As always, Dave, I want to take a quick moment to say thank you so much to all of our listeners. It means the world to us to have you here listening to us each week. And we hope we get to bring you a little bit of knowledge and fun to your favorite games. So thank you for listening along. Yes, indeed. All right, fellow adventurers. That wraps up our journey through The Legend of Zelda. I hope you enjoyed diving into the mystical realm of how Hyrule was created. That was a weird sentence, but I'm going to roll with it. Next week, though, we're going to be putting away our swords and shields, and we're going to be picking up a book. And we're going to read a good story. That's oh. all we're, yeah, that's all we're doing. For about a decade from the mid 80 like about 80 i think it's 86 to 96 let's say mid 80s to mid 90s the tellarium corporation was dedicated to creating interactive fiction with established writers they teamed up with the likes of ray bradbury arthur clark and even michael crichton to make some what i would call relatively unknown video games and we're going to be visiting their entire library next week so curl up in your favorite chair, grab a blanket and a great pair of headphones and snuggle up with us as we talk about good books and good video games on next week's trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Skibby button 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 doo doo. Ah.